want to encourage you, if you don't have a devotional that you use every day, out on the table are a fresh stack of Days of Praise from Institute for Creation Research. So there's a three-month-long devotional out there. Feel free to grab them. They're free. Take them home. Use them. Read them. Post them on Facebook. Do whatever. Do something to get yourself in the Word every day. Amen? Tonight, if you turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10, I'm going to pick up in verse 19, and a study entitled Faith-Filled Living. One of the great problems that I think most Christians have, initially at least in their walks with the Lord, is we learn all these things from the Bible and then we fail to live them. We, we have a tendency to kind of chalk them up like many people do about knowledge in general. It's just something that you know. It's not something that you do. And the passage before us tonight, writer of Hebrews goes on to, uses the word therefore. It begins kind of the second section of the book of Hebrews. It really uh, starts here. The first section ends really in verse 18 of chapter 10. The rest of it will go through the end. The first section was developing kind of how superior the Lord Jesus is, and now it's our responsibility to live that by faith. We have been given this incredible privilege of being God's children by grace and through faith. That's a gift to us. We, we aren't forced into it. We come into that relationship by love. And then we get to really have the opportunity to watch that faith grow and expand. And when you talk to pastors, and I will, I will just share this with you, you know, we get together for conferences and those kind of things. Probably, I would say for me, the number one thing that I hear pastor after pastor after pastor after pastor express is, I wish I had more faith. And that's pastors. I wish I had the faith to trust God in this or to step out in that area or to relinquish those things. Is we're all human and we're all uh, prone to, to giving into our flesh. We have, because we're God's kids, a responsibility to live by faith. Matter of fact, we're going to find as we finish this book that without faith it's impossible to please God, that ultimately uh, the things that we do that please the Lord are those things of faith. And so... And now we have that responsibility, and we're going to pick up there in verse 19 in just a moment. And I want to share with you before we get there that every once in a while, you know, we who are Calvary Chapel, I was looking over a couple of lists today because I ran across some things. I was just simply cross-checking the figures to see if they were true. And in fact, they are, that the average size of the church in America, according to a number of polls, uh, Barna poll, a Pew Research poll, a Christianity Today poll, uh, when polling church membership and kind of finding out what a church looks like, what it's comprised of, did you know that the average church in America now is down to 82 people? That's the average church in America is 82 people. Uh, and, and that's it's, it's down from 102 or so about 10 years ago. That's the average size of a church in America. And that average church is supposed to be living lives of faith in a way so that the world sees who we are and what we do and how we conduct ourselves on this earth. And we're to be replicated and modeled. 
And part of the problem that, that we have as churches is often I think we leave it to bigger churches to get that done. We almost think, like, well, does really a, a Calvary Chapel running springs matter? I know that there are people that have, that have said that to me, and of course the answer to that is yes. But the simple fact of the matter is sometimes we can look at the same things that the world looks at. Well, you know, if they really had faith, then that church would be a megachurch. You realize that a definition of a megachurch is 2,000 or more people. There are about 1,200 of them in the United States. Uh, something on the order of 45 of those happen to be Calvary chapels. Uh, of the ones that are over 10,000, 13 of them are Calvary chapels. So there are some huge representations of that, but I can tell you that there are 197,000 churches in America. So it's a very small percentage of the church that's represented by these big things that happen everywhere. Most of the church is just like us. A vast majority of the church is just like us. It's not big, gigantic works. It's not hundreds upon hundreds or thousands of people. It's a handful of people. It's 100, 200 people gathered together that form a unique body, and that unique body carries out the work of the church in a vast majority of the world, not just here in America. And that's a life of faith. It's easy to live lives of faith in the midst of great prosperity or with great blessing. I was, when I was down at South Bay, I just actually had lunch with Pastor Jack at Chino Hills, and we were sitting there walking through the courtyard. Their courtyard holds 4,000 people. I was sitting there teaching at South Bay, and each one of their services with the overflow room is 3,500 people. You, you can look at that and go, wow, God's really moving. But you know what the, the strange thing is? There are still people in that church that are struggling with divorce. There are still people in those churches. It's just there's hundreds of them that are struggling with finances and all those things. And the answer to those conditions of life is to live a life of faith. Sometimes there's not much more you can do. It's really a matter of what you believe and who you believe in. And so we'll pick up tonight in verse 19 with that little introduction. Let's ask the Lord to speak to us. Father God, we thank you. Lord, I thank you for this church. Lord, we may be small by the world's standards. We're not a mega church, but we want to live lives by faith. Lord, we want to be pleasing to you. Lord, we pray that you would increase our faith, that you'd help us, Lord, to trust you in every area of our life. Help us to be an encouragement to each other. Lord, that we would really fulfill all that you've called us to this earth for. We bless you. We pray that you'd speak to us now through your word. We ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Verse 19 here in Hebrews 10. And therefore, brethren, relating to everything that you've previously learned in the last ten chapters. So therefore, this is a big, huge, fatty therefore. Therefore, because of all of who Jesus is, he's greater than Moses. His sanctuary is a better sanctuary. His covenant's a better covenant. His ways are better than the old. It's just this infinitely better picture of Jesus. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, 
you ever think of having boldness to enter into God's presence? I think most of us enter into God's presence cowering, shaking, quaking, crawling, peeking out from behind stuff because we think we're hiding from him. We're able to enter with boldness because of Jesus. You can walk right in and say, hello, Father God. He, he wants to hear from you. He wants to hear from me. He wants to hear from us. You can go into his presence. You don't need me. You don't need this church. You don't need other people. You, because of who you are in Christ Jesus, can walk into the throne room of God in a, in a figurative manner of speaking through prayer. You can enter his presence by a new and a living way which he consecrated for us. That word consecrated means to make holy. Which he made holy for us. The way before was the Old Testament. And remember the, the Old Covenant didn't work all the way. Kind of got you a glimpse, but it didn't finish the job. That new way has been made holy for us through the veil. That is his flesh. His body torn gave that veil a good rip at the same time. His death secured an opening in that which used to separate us, as I shared with you before. Having a high priest over the house of God, and there used to be a house of God that was called Israel. And now there is a house of God that's called you. The house of God is not a building, it's people. You are the house of God. You're the building of God that's not made with hands. The the church exists everywhere that God's people exist. Whether it be one or two or thousands, each of those places is a place that can be said this is the house of God. And says, let us draw near, and I love this. You can go with boldness because of the sacrifice that was consecrated by Jesus, because of what he did, you can go with boldness, and now you can actually draw near. This is the reason that therefore is there. Because what it's pointing to is the old way was a failure, the new ways replaced it. You now have the boldness to enter into the very presence of God, and you can actually get close to him. You see, that was really the whole point of Jesus' coming, was to bring us near to God, nearer than anyone had ever been. And it's not by some religious system. It's not by a bunch of do's and don'ts and regulations. It's by a relationship with the one who loves you, the one who loves me. With a true heart in full assurance of faith. I want you to notice the wording here. The writer of Hebrews, the Holy Spirit empowering the person who wrote these words, is giving you about as much confidence as you can possibly have. You can enter in. You can enter in with confidence. You can draw near. You have full assurance. Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, which is the old way you used to be, amen? Without Jesus, that was the deal. As good as you may have been, your conscience was basically evil. Some of you, your consciences are still evil. No, I'm just kidding. You've been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. But you couldn't have gone in before. There was no way to cleanse your conscience. 
Because without Jesus, it was just like the Old Testament. It was just religious action. I remember doing, I don't know if you guys ever did any of those things. I made promises to God all the time. It's like, Lord, if you just get me out of this, you know, I'll read my Bible more. Lord, if you, if you just fix this thing, I, I'm going to go to church twice this month. I didn't have any confidence and my conscience wasn't clean. I wasn't walking with the Lord. I wasn't walking in faith. I saw God as kind of a genie in a bottle. And every time I wanted something, I just kind of rubbed the bottle and God would pop out and go, okay, now what do I got to do to get your attention? Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You know, that victory over the flesh that we now have because of Jesus. We didn't have that before. You know, it's really interesting when you when you do a cross-sectional study of the various disciplines of what we call the mind sciences, psychiatry and psychology and those types of things, those things that are directly related to your mind. Their failure rate is extremely high. Some place in the neighborhood of 84 to 88% of all psychologic and psychiatric counseling fails because it actually doesn't address the real problem. The real problem is who's running the show. If, if you're still running the show, if your carnal mind is still running the show, then you do not have the power to overcome those things that have captured you. Oh, you may have some victory for a while. You may be able to forestall the inevitable for a while. But as a general rule, very few people possess the actual willpower to be victorious for long periods of time. And so what it's saying here is we've actually been fixed. The problem's been cured. For let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised it is faithful. Notice it doesn't. He who gets it is faithful. That isn't what it says. He who obtains it is faithful. He who has the promise given to him is faithful. It doesn't say that. It says he who made the promise in the first place, which is God, is faithful. He's faithful. As we saw in our study in the pastoral epistles, even when we are faithless, he is still faithful. God keeps his promises 100% of the time. You will never get to heaven and go, you know, well, gosh, God, I, I, you, you promised that this would happen and, and it didn't happen. It's never going to happen that way. He's faithful to complete it unto the day of Christ Jesus. His word declares. And then it goes on saying all that, recognizing who we are, realizing who we are in Christ Jesus. It says this. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. This is where we get to live lives of faith. Let us consider one another. Now, as you look around this room, as you view your own home, those people that you work with, the people that you know, your extended family all over the globe, the people in this nation, when you hear these words, you have to picture that you're part of the church. And the church is not just this little local fellowship that we are. It is the church universal. It's the church everywhere in the world. And what it says is, let us consider one another. In other words, we're to not hoard all these things to ourselves. 
We're not to simply receive from the Lord and get our nice little Christian club together and we'll just kind of all sit over here and be holy. This is why when people tell me they want to become a monk, I ask them why. They'll usually say, because I just want to be more holy. And I say, if that's what you think you're going to get, you're sadly mistaken. Because some of the most heinous things that have ever been done on the face of the earth have been done by monks. Crazy stuff. People who have sealed themselves away for the purpose of getting away from the outside world have done heinous, unbelievable things. What it says is, let us consider one another. In order to stir up love and good works, notice that love is first, because that is the signifier of the true Christian walk, things done in love. Genuine, Christ-like, God-honoring love. Let us look around, consider one another, and stir up love and good works. Those things that people would look at and go, glory to God. Not forsaking. Notice this. When people tell you, well, I don't really need to go to church. Your Bible says otherwise. That's not this church. It's not a church that, that, you know, is some specific building somewhere. You cannot and must not forsake church. Because part of the purpose of church is laid out here. It's to love one another and to stir up good works. And so it says, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as in the manner of some. During this day and time, there were people that thought, well, you know, I'm more holy than Bob. And so, because Bob is not as holy as I am, why should I get together with Bob? Because after all, I mean, I'm going to get dirty if I hang around with Bob, because Bob's not as good as I am. Can I say to you, there are a boatload of people in that club in this country, in this world, well, you know, why do I need to go to church? After all, I already know seven Bible verses. I have memorized John 3:16 and 17. And I have a devotional and a study Bible. So what do I need church for? Because church is where you get built up get edified, get challenged. You get to do that work that you've been called to do. It rarely happens, rarely happens, outside of a body that builds up that work. That's why you don't find a lot of missionaries who are self-supported as a party of one. Matter of fact, I don't personally know a single one. I do not know a missionary in the field, and I know hundreds, if not thousands, of people who are in the mission field. I know hundreds, if not thousands, and not one of them is there by themselves. Every last one of them was sent from somewhere by somebody, still supported by a bunch of other people, prayed for by other people, supported by other people, built up and edified by other people. It's part of the function of the body of Christ. If the church is weak, then the church loses the ability to do the greater things for the kingdom. If the church isn't strengthened in and of itself, it loses its ability to really have an impact in the world.
the bunch of us can do things that one of us could not ever do. And so it gives this beautiful picture of how the church functions. But exhorting one another, and notice this, and so much more as you see the day approaching. In other words, as the world winds down, as the day of the Lord draws near, we're going to need each other more than we have ever needed each other. And we're, we're really going to need, in essence, the, the unity of the body of Christ more than we have ever needed the unity of the body of Christ. Because I'll tell you what, there's a lot of people who like to see us go bye-bye. They're, they're influenced by the enemy himself. And you're hearing it in the news media daily. You know, it's these Christians that are responsible for everything being like it is. The world would be a better place without them. We're more concerned about raiding fourth graders' lunchboxes than we are holiness in this country. The church is necessary. And so now we begin to apply some of these doctrines, and that's what will take us actually to the end of the book, is the application of these things. And as you see these things, we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus. What has the Lord really provided? The Greek word that's used here to enter is, the, is a word parisia. And parisia is, if, if you've ever had anything that you've gone to, if maybe you've gone to NASCAR or a concert or something like that, and you have everybody's got the little name tags on, and some of them are like blue and some of them are green. And, and then there's the one that says all access, lets you go anywhere, everywhere. You can go anywhere. You can go downstairs. You can go behind the stage. You can go anywhere. That's what this word means. It is an all access pass to anywhere and everywhere that God is. Straight into the heavenlies. Christ has done that for us. Because he's sitting at the right hand of God the Father, you need to look at it this way. God the Father, Jesus the Son, Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God the Father, and you walk into the presence of God via your prayer, and Jesus says, all access pass. Let him in. Whatever he has to say, he's gone through all the things, and he's got an all access pass. Come right in and talk to him. So your prayers get there because of that blood. Your sin's covered. It's blotted out. It's remembered no more as we shared before. And so you can enter directly into the presence of God through Jesus the Son. In essence, it went from stay out to come on in. It went from you can't to please do. Huge difference. When you think of religion, when you think of what the Old Testament, the Old Covenant used to bring, it brought fear. It brought trembling. It brought a, a, an intense sense of guilt and shame, mourning for your own unholiness. And what do you have by the New Covenant? You have peace with God the Father, full assurance of that faith. You have the cleansing, uh, the washing of the water and the word of God. And, and all of a sudden, it's just a different picture altogether. Everything that used to be telling you, don't get near me because you'll die from being in the presence of God, is now please come near me because it's all been taken care of. You're good. You have that assurance. 
man, I, I am just so thankful. And I was pondering, I was talking to a couple of guys at the camp two days ago on Monday. And we were just we were just praying as we do in the morning sometimes. And we were just praying, what are you most thankful for? And it just struck me, I am most thankful for the grace of God. Everything else pales in comparison to the grace of God for me. When I think of what I need most every day, it's the grace of God, His unmerited favor. Because I find ways to mess stuff up. I'm just good at it. I am a professional at taking easy things and making them complex and overthinking things. And, you know, I just do that. That's, that's my nature. To some degree, it's one of the things that God uses in my life. But I also am not perfect at it. And so I, I'm constantly, oh, Lord, I should have done this or I should have done that. And I just need your grace to cover this. I need your grace to cover my words. I need your grace to cover my thoughts. I have that 100% of the time. God's not ever going to run out of grace. Praise God that that blood has given us all that we need. Sometimes we forget that. I know. As a, I remember as a, as a young Christian thinking, well, you know, I'm probably like a two now. You know, everything was ranked for me. It's like, okay, I'm a two. Christians go from one to ten, I'm a two. And someday I'll be a three, and maybe I'll get to an eight before I die. You realize you're all tens? You are perfect in Christ Jesus as Lord. Not because you're perfect, because he's perfect. That's why you can enter in. If you weren't perfect, you couldn't enter in. So stop acting like you're a two. You're not twos. You're tens from God's perspective. You need to remember that. It doesn't mean that you wave your sin in God's face and say, well, you have to take me. No, you, you fall upon the grace of God. And say, Lord, I know I've blown it, but I know Christ's blood is bigger than my sin. We now have free access. A companion passage to this one is found in Ephesians 2. If you want to turn there, I'll pick up in verse 13 for you. So Ephesians 2, verse 13. And I love this. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Man, isn't that the truth? I was about as far from God as you could possibly get. Like if God was over there, I was over there. You know, like the opposite ends of the spectrum. Verse 14, For he himself is our peace, and has made both one, has broken down the middle wall of separation. Same exact picture. The veil's torn, the middle wall's down. There's nothing keeping you from God's presence. The only reason that you aren't in God's presence is because you don't want to be there. That's the only thing that can keep you out as a Christian, is you don't ask, you don't go. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity. These are really beautiful words that are chosen here by the author of the book of Hebrews, the Apostle Paul. The enmity, the warfare, the battle. See, it used to be that you couldn't go in because God was against you. You realize that before Christ, God was actually against us? He was against us. There was, there was enmity between us. He was holy, we were unrighteous, and we could not fix the problem. 
He was against us. Not that he wanted to be. He had to be because he was holy and there was no way to make us holy. We could get kind of sort of there. So there was a head-butting that always happened. That is the law of the commandments contained in the ordinances so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, and thereby putting to death the enmity, killing the warfare, ending the battle, finishing it all off because we couldn't do it, Jesus did it. That he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and to those who are near. And through him, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Jesus did what the law couldn't do. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Because we were a mess. If it was up to us, it was up to religion, we were going to stay dead exactly as this chapter begins in our trespasses and sins. Chapter 2 of the book of Ephesians just it makes this blanket statement. You who were once dead in your trespasses and sins, he asked me to life. We were dead. You're now alive. Thank you, Jesus. You see, we have that full assurance. And honestly, these words are amazing. Because you think about it, holy God and you. Holy God, me. Holy God, I don't care who. Holy God, Billy Graham, don't care. Holy God, Chuck Smith. Holy God, Chuck Swindoll. Any Chuck you can think of. Holy God and whoever. Five Chucks. Just increases their unholiness when you add them together. Seriously. Think about it. If one person is unholy and you have two people, do you have more unholiness or less unholiness? You have more unholiness. So the more people you get involved in it, the worse it gets. Amen? That's simple. Holy God, Jesus himself, breaks down that middle wall so that there's no longer warfare. You're not battling over whether you're holy or not. He's made you holy. He's made you found who was once lost. Verse 21, I want to break this down a little bit as we wrap this up tonight. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let's draw near. This is the first of the five draw near statements that we're going to see. And they do several things that are, quite frankly, amazing. And I also want you to see a couple of things that are so important for us as, as believers as we look at this whole passage, as we finish to verse 25, there are, there are three basic things that are in there. And you're going to see them here in verses 21 and 22. Uh, the first thing that, that Christ did is he, he deals with our faith in God. So the first thing he deals with is faith. He makes that faith possible. The second thing you're going to see is that he deals with the hope that we have in our salvation. Because without hope in salvation, if you're hoping in the upcoming presidential election, oh my goodness. Uh, if you're hoping that the economy is going to be immensely better next year, God help you. If you are hoping in world peace, you're just silly. If, if you are thinking that somehow that hope that you have, those wonderful, nice, happy thoughts, are, are going to make sure that our environment you know, is forever spared, isn't going to happen. 
The only hope this world has is Jesus. That's it. Everything else is either false hope in its entirety or partial hope in something that can't finish the job. That's why I feel sorry for people who get too far carried away in some of these fringy things. I love animals. I love the environment. But I don't have hope that, you know, if we save the whales and save the trees, that we're going to save the world. It's not going to happen. Unless we save men's souls, we cannot save the earth. That's the only way it gets saved. That's what your Bible says. That's not what Jeff says. And so, if we look at this passage, we're going to see that the third thing that happens is that we have to deal with our loved one for another because that's a hard commodity to come by in our world. Because some of us aren't all that easy to love. Amen? That's okay. You can admit that. I'm probably relatively high on some of your list of unloving, you know, unlovable folks. But it's true. Only God can bridge that gap. The only thing that brings Sunni and Shiites together is God's love. It isn't a cessation of hostilities. You know how I know that? Look what's happened in Iraq. We go over there and spent something like $1.3 trillion fighting a, a multiple-year war. really started back in 1990. And the moment we pull out, what are they doing? Killing each other again. So it isn't the absence of conflict that brings about love, is it? If you don't fill that void that's in the human heart with the real deal, which is God's love, you end up with exactly the same problem expressed maybe some different way. That's what happens. That's why the only true and lasting peace that's ever occurred in any nation on earth that's lasted more than 240 years, guess where it's existed? Right here in the good old U.S. of A. Have we fought a couple of wars? Yes. Did we fight a civil war? Yes. But we did that to go the right direction, not the wrong direction. Christian moral values, Christ-like love. As imperfect as it is, that's the answer. And so we now belong to this new house, this house of God. These five let us statements, and that's not let us as in what you put on a hamburger. That is let us you notice there in verse 21, let us draw near to God. In verse 23, let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess. Verse 24, there's going to be let us consider how we spur one another on or stir each other up. Verse 25, it says, let us not give up meeting with one another. And also in verse 25, let us encourage one another. And so it begins here in this first of these statements, and it, and it says here in four parts in this first one, it says, uh, let us with a sincere heart. And, and what that simply means is give it everything you have. Give, give it all you got. You know, it's important that we as the body of Christ are not halfway Christian, that, that we're sold out for the Lord. And so it says with a sincere heart, pure, undefiled is another way to look at that. Having the right motivation is yet another. The second part of it, notice it says there, in the full assurance of faith. In other words, that 
if you are convinced of something, have you ever listened to people argue about sports teams? It is the most hilarious thing on earth. Oh, yeah, well, I know these guys, you know, whoever's going to win. Like, we're, we're kind of doing the basketball thing right now, and the Miami Heat are looking like they're doing pretty well. They're, they're going to be there. Oklahoma City Thunder, you know, we've got a couple of really good teams. And people will sit there and they'll just argue endlessly. Well, you know, I, I'm, you know, D-Wade, I mean, he's way better than, than, you know, this. And they just back and forth, and it's just like, God, oh, they'll, they'll almost kill each other trying to prove who's the better basketball team. They'll go to blows. Some of you know, you know, we were previously pretty rabid Charger fans. We had season tickets for a number of years, and we would go. And, I mean, for the whole week, I would be completely hoarse from screaming and yelling, you know, stupid slogans at a football game. You know, we just screaming and yelling and, you know, just all this effort that goes into it. Fully sure somehow they were going to win, even though they're getting beat. I know they can win. Do you have that kind of assurance about your faith? Are you screaming and yelling about Jesus? Are you willing to go toe-to-toe about Jesus with other people? Like when somebody says something, they insult your Jesus, what do you do? Because I can tell you what happens if you insult someone else's football team. You get beat to a pulp and left in a parking lot. Your car is completely tagged by the time you come out of the game. I'm not suggesting you should do that if somebody's not a Christian, by the way. But do we have that same kind of assurance in who Jesus is, that we're willing to say those kind of things when people ask and inquire of the hope that lies within us? What do we do? Well, you know, yeah, well, I kind of go to church. Do you have assurance of your faith so much so that it's so important to you that you rather talk about nothing else but Jesus? That kind of assurance... The third thing, having our hearts sprinkled to be cleansed. This is using some sacrificial language here. And what it it means is you're no longer just temporarily clean. Under the Old Covenant, you used to be temporarily clean for about as long as it took you to get out of the sanctuary. Then you were right back messed up again. But you're no longer that way. You're actually clean, clean all the time. As far as God's concerned, it's just as if you'd never sinned. That's what the word justified means. That means no longer does God look at you and go, hmm, don't know what I'm going to do about that when he dies. God looks at you and goes, when he dies, he takes his last breath, she dies, she takes her last breath, that one's coming home. Sprinkled, cleansed from that guilty conscience. And then finally, the fourth part of this first one, Having our bodies washed with that pure water. You know, that that sign that the work that's been done in your life is complete. You're not lacking anything. You know, sometimes I, I think that we look at it in the way that Scripture describes it. Because we're on a journey and we have a ways to go, we almost look at it like we're not we're not complete in, in that sense. And you are complete. If you were to die today, you're going to heaven. Period. There's nothing else you have to do. You're not missing any component part. When you said yes to Jesus, it was sufficient for you to be saved. Now, the other things that happened to you happened not to get you saved or not to make you more saved, but because you are saved, you just simply get better at being more like Jesus. We're cleansed. God enables us. In essence, we've given up the old ownership 
of the old house to the new ownership of the new house. You know, we're in a presidential election year. And I think it's a good way to kind of look at this. Uh, we, because we're the house of God, there, there's a high priest over the house of God. His name's Jesus. He writes the rules. We have a president. He, he, gets, he has extreme amounts of power. Amen? You don't understand that, then you haven't looked at your checkbook recently. It's got extreme amounts of power. You're going to be paying $5 a gallon for gasoline by summer. And that's all because of one little pipeline he decided to not build. And I'm not trying to bag on our president here. I'm trying to give you an idea of what leadership means. Leadership means that if you're under somebody, you will either reap the good or you will suffer for the bad. And to the extent that we have given over full leadership to Jesus Christ, we will either reap the good or suffer the bad. Depends on how committed we are to the relationship. Let's draw near. And here's how this works in the presidential election. How would you like to get all of your information direct from the White House? You pick up the phone, Mr. President. Uh, I was just kind of wondering, you know, what's the stock market doing today? Oh, thank you very much. I'd like to get it from the person that's closest to making those decisions. If I want information, I want it from the one who can affect the information the greatest. For us, that's Jesus. I want to be as close. I want to draw near to God. I want to have that vitality and that purpose. I want to know that I'm doing all that I can. The second let us that is here is found in verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. The the walk that we walk is not an easy walk, amen? You kind of have to hang on, and that's what this let us is telling us. We have to persevere. We have to hold fast. The the phrase that's used there, uh, to hold fast, literally means to lock to. It doesn't just mean to kind of hang on if you can. It means to make it so you can't let go. It means wrap your arms, wrap your legs, bite onto it, do whatever you have to have, but do everything that you can to hang on to Jesus. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope. You see, my hope's not in this world. And if I'm going to hold fast, then I have to do things that indicate that I'm hanging on, that I'm holding fast. Wavering back and forth. Notice that it says without wavering. Wavering back and forth, having one foot in the world and one foot in the church doesn't get it. And any of you that have done that can say yes and amen. Amen. It does not work putting one foot in the world and one foot in the church. That's wavering. It doesn't do any good to walk in the Spirit and walk in the flesh. You've got to be fully committed. You have to hang on to your confession of faith, that hope that you have in Christ Jesus. It's not going to be easy. You've got to hang on. I was, I was watching a little video clip on a, on a kid that, that fell off of a ski lift in Colorado earlier this winter. And he's hang, he hung up on his jacket. He's like 40 feet off the ground. He was up there for like 18 minutes hanging by his jacket. And finally, any of you that have ever had that experience being a rock climber myself, I can tell you hanging in a harness in an awkward position, pretty soon everything goes numb. And as he's hanging there, you can hear the guys on the ground. First, there's like one person, hold on, hold on, we're going to get some help, hold on. And by the time it was all said and done, there was about 15 people down there. 
And eventually, he couldn't hang on anymore, but he'd held on long enough that there were people there to catch him. He was completely uninjured after falling from the ski lift. You've got to hold on. It's not easy. You may be turning blue in spots. You may have the death grip on life. You've got to hold on. Hold fast. Can you imagine what this was like for these guys? They didn't have the whole New Testament. They weren't walking around with the letters of Paul. Okay, it's going to be all right. We know heaven's coming. They didn't have the book of Revelation. They didn't understand that at the end we win. They didn't know that yet. So these guys hearing this were going, hold on, okay, I'm going to hang on. Guess how they had to hang on? By faith. They were hanging on by faith. They're going, you know, I can't see it yet. I just got to believe there's going to be people down there to catch me when it finally comes time for me to let go of this. That's the same thing with the Lord. We have to hang on. We just got to hang on until he comes and gets the church. There's some things that I would share with you that are, that are key to that practice. Have a habit of being transparent with God and with other believers. Can I just tell you, it's kind of stupid to lie to God. It doesn't do you a whole lot of good because, number one, he doesn't believe a word you say because he already knows the truth. You're there, well, God, I'm, I'm going to... He already knows your heart. doesn't do you any good to make false promises to God. And frankly, it doesn't do any good to do that to the body of Christ, your family either, because ultimately the truth is going to win out and you're just going to look silly. And you could have made the process a whole bunch shorter by simply telling the truth in the first place. Express that in everything that you do. What that does, it sets you free. If you're, not, if you're having one of those days where you're unhappy, be transparent with people. So they can pray for you, so they can edify you, so they can build you up, so they can stand underneath the chairlift and catch you if you fall. Be transparent. Number two, get into God's Word. These things that I'm sharing with you are not hidden mysteries that I you know, dug up. They're not things that, you know, nobody else has ever known. Oh, you should have heard Pastor Jeff, man. He said all these things. These things have been known for 2,000 years. People have been repeating these exact same things, and they're contained in your Bible. You can get them for yourself. And I pray you do. I mean, I'm delighted to be able to share God's Word with you, but you should be getting some of it for yourself. I want to teach you how to be minors. And I don't mean miners like under 18. I mean miners like any mine. Getting your own gold. Find your own nuggets. Dig out your own diamonds. Go get some of that stuff for yourself. Meditate on the Word. And the third thing that I would share with you with this regard to holding fast, if you want to really hold fast, give God the number one priority in your life. Because I'll tell you what, you can't hang on to anything you don't care about. Amen? I, I, and I've had that experience. After a while, you're kind of hanging on, you know, you're just like, oh, look, that's a bird over there. And you let go. It's what we do. We're human beings. If there's no priority to hanging on to God and godly things and God's word and the stuff that God is, if we don't have that as a priority, then we can't hang on to it. You've got to give God top billing in your life. You need to be concerned. What does he think? What does he want? What would he do? There are a lot of diversions that will try and crowd your schedule. 
There are a lot of things that will vie for attention. Make God the number one priority in your life. Period. It should be nothing else. It doesn't mean that you become useless at your job. It doesn't mean that you no longer talk to your... Well, I'm talking to God, so I don't need to talk to you, honey. (laughs) doesn't mean when your kids come in and they need help with, you know, algebra or calculus, you just go, well, I'm talking to God. It doesn't mean any of those things. Matter of fact, if you're going to talk about calculus, you'll need God's help. Was that sine, cosine, A? I'm not sure. You need to hang on to God. You need to make Him the top priority. Because He's the only one that's got the answers that you need. 100% of them. You might have two or three people in your life that can give you some of those things. Chances are they're not going to be around when you need them. But He will always be around when you need Him. He is faithful. And the final three of these let us... Statements are all found in verses 24 and 25. Let us consider how we be spurring one another on towards love and good deeds. And let us not give up meeting together as is the habit of some. And let us encourage one another and all the more as we see the day approaching. So these final three things, these third, the fourth, and the fifth one, let, let us spur on. It means to stimulate strongly. It actually is the same exact Greek word that's used to mean to incite a riot. It is to get you guys so hopped up on Jesus that you are freaking out over your relationship with him. That's what it means. Let us incite each other to be in an absolute crazed frenzy over God. Not over the things of the world. It doesn't mean that those don't matter. I had somebody last week who said, Oh, you know, the way you're talking is like we shouldn't even care about life. I have never said that, and I have never intimated that. I do not mean that. What I mean is, is if God's the number one priority, and we're stirring people to be closer to God, then the very best that you can get out of this world, you'll get. And you'll enjoy it more. You'll be in the right priority. You'll have the right perspective on things. We want to stir, let us stir people up to that. And by the way, you can't do that very well alone. It's tough to stir somebody up when there's only one person. Because you can't get yourself too hyped up on stuff. Amen? That's why they have cheerleaders. They imply that they lead someone else. Amen? It's the same principle. It's getting people excited. Exciting one another. Man, God showed me this. The Lord did this in my life. We were sitting down having dinner, and Dan was came up and was talking about his car repair and how the Lord led him to somebody, and it was going to be like seven, eight hundred dollars at a dealer, and it was only four hundred to this guy, and it'd actually be better. Those kind of things. You're giving glory to God. You're saying, you know what? It was seemed impossible, but now it's possible because of God. You're stirring each other up, going, man, if, if they can go through it and do that, then so can I. It is the oorah for Jesus. Amen. That's why Adam's nuts. That's why he does that. Yeah, it's getting excited about Jesus. Having him be something that matters in your life. This individualistic attitude that, it, that exists in our nation that really kind of came about in the 40s and 50s and has continued and borne horrible fruit needs to die. It, it isn't good. This whole concept that 
you know, well, if I don't have any people in my life, then I can't upset anybody or I, I won't disappoint anyone. That's nuts. That's absolutely crazy. Because I am far better with a whole bunch of people who love Jesus than I am with trying to do it on my own. Because the things that I may lack, chances are somebody else is going to have. The answer I may not hear, they'll probably hear. It's true in your marriage. That's why marriages where one person rules the other don't work. You need to have that constant influx of the things that God wants you to know. And, and it goes on to say to encourage one another. And, and as, as we build each other up, as we spur each other on, uh, we're reminding each other, that, hey, one day this is all going to end. You know, eventually, this whole world is actually coming to an end. Now, sometimes when I tell people that, especially it seems like you ladies, you get all freaked out. Well, I'm not going to be able to go to my daughter's wedding. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that. Well, I was planning on getting married. Trust me, going to heaven's better than that. It really is. As, as wonderful as marriage is, it doesn't compare to heaven. As wonderful as watching your kids get married is, doesn't compare to heaven. As, as glorious as it might be to take that vacation you've always wanted to, to Bora Bora, it does not compare to heaven. We're to encourage one another that there is actually something better than this life. It's not just the here and now that we're concerned about. It is the hereafter we're concerned about. And here's the crazy thing. If you have the right focus on the hereafter, you'll have a better focus on the here and now. You'll enjoy the things right here, right now, much more having a proper perspective, knowing that even if this doesn't work out, it's still going to be really good when it's all over. It, it seems like, and I will just share this with you, in my own experience, I have had more rotten vacations as a solid Christian than I ever had when I was not walking with the Lord. And I think the Lord does it for this reason. Because I'm prone to really like fishing. And so if I go and I, you know, I catch, I never catch the big fish anymore. I used to always catch the big fish. I don't catch the big fish. The dog catches bigger fish than I do. Because if I'm out there and I'm just like, well, I don't know if I really need the Lord. You know, after all, I mean, I'm catching big fish. We're like that. We kind of focus in on other stuff. And it can be our bank accounts, it can be our houses, it can be our cars or our businesses or our marriages or whatever. If you don't encourage each other about the, what the future holds, then you get stuck on the things of this earth. And quite frankly, the things of this earth fail us very frequently. Amen? You know, it's like you go buy a new car and you go, well, there's not going to be anything wrong with it. And the first thing that happens is you go to Walmart and there's some person with six carts of groceries and they're trying to push them by themselves and they decide that your car is the ideal place to stop. <laughs> You're like, but Lord, encourage one another about what lies ahead. Encourage one another not to go it alone. Go it together. I would encourage you in this way. That means, as I said, making God a priority and making church a priority. 
That's not because I just want this place full. It's because I want you full. It's I want you guys to have all that you need for life and godliness. And we do that better together than we do by ourselves. I'm guessing I probably have a little bit deeper understanding of some of the tougher passages of Scripture than, than most of you. I can probably share a few things with you. So we kind of do that. And then here's the cool thing. Once you learn those things, and you share them with somebody else. But if we just all sit around trying to get whatever we can get ourselves, and we never share it with anybody else, we don't gather together to share those things, then it kind of stays with us. And then imagine if everyone had to go it alone. And we've got, if you, if you look at my electronic library, you go, that's crazy. What do you do with all those books? Well, here's what I do with all those books. I can study all of them. I can look at the works that, that people for hundreds of years have studied the same exact passage of Scripture. I'm being built up and edified by somebody who's been dead for 400 years. I, I am going to leave a legacy of doing the same thing for other people. Won't be as great as Albert Barnes, but there will be people whose lives have been touched by mine, and they will be by yours as well. Maybe mine in a different sphere, maybe mine a few more people, but yours nonetheless just as important. Matter of fact, you may touch some lives that I can't even get to, but we do that through the body of Christ. You may meet somebody. And you can encourage them to have that heavenly outlook. So let us draw near to God. Let us hold on. Let us consider how we can spur each other or encourage one another to to do greater things. Let's not give up meeting together and hanging out together. And let us encourage each other. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this passage of Scripture. And Lord, we do. We want to hold on to those things that you've shown us. We want to draw near to you, Lord. You've made that possible through Jesus. Help us to not be standoffish. Lord, help us to not continue to look to our own faults and weaknesses as the only source of the way that we can draw near to you. Lord, if we were to need to get cleaned up ourselves, we'd never get there. Thank you, Jesus, that you did that for us. And so, God, in all of these things, let us encourage each other as we gather together. We bless you. We thank you. And we praise you, Lord, for this time in your word. Pray that you now impart it to us. Lord, is truth. Help us to live it. Help us to walk by faith. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.